0: Namurta sah, kuatu arahatu sama sambuddhasa. Namurta sah, kuatu arahatu sama sambuddhasa. Namurta sah, kuatu arahatu sama sambuddhasa. Putang mong This being the first Sunday of the month, we have our Dhamma quote to consider together, which is, for this month, Dhammapada, verse 76, which says, Only blessings can arise from seeking the company of wise and discerning persons who skillfully offer both admonition and advice, as if guiding us to hidden treasures. Very nice photo of and Anek and visiting Chithurst and with Arjun Kruniko there together by the Chitterhurst Lake. And so this verse the Buddha the, obviously encouraging the pointing out the benefits of finding those who can skillfully offer admonition and, and advice and support us and encourage us on the journey. And we're probably also aware how much the Buddha encouraged the recognition that, as he put it, you are your own refuge, and in other words, self-reliance. Atahyata no nato, you are your own true refuge. It's something very strongly emphasised. Yet there's also this encouragement of finding spiritual companions, particularly those who have walked the path further than we have, and probably you're aware the. The emphasis that Buddha put on kalyanamitta or spiritual companions, saying that it's an essential element of the spiritual life. And so in this case, in this verse, it's the, the emphasis is on finding those who can give us guidance. And interestingly, when I read this verse and Started considering it, what came to mind was certainly uh, the idea of blessings and benefits as clearly very appealing, but then how do we know whether a teacher is really wise and discerning and has our best interests at heart? And possibly I had such a thought because of news items that I'd read recently about certain characters well-known in the Buddhist world who, about whom all sorts of questions are being asked whether they really had the best interest of their students at heart. You know. But this is relevant for anybody on the spiritual journey cause there's certainly always been and is now the case that there are plenty of people around who would like to manipulate spiritual seekers. So if you're interested in finding someone who can give guidance, and it's certainly appropriate to ask the right questions of ourselves and... and also to be able to ask questions of the teacher, him or herself. We all find ourselves getting lost from time to time. and and What we're looking for is how to learn to not get lost. And the last thing we need is, is somebody who's going to take us in the wrong direction. So how can we, or how should we, how might we ponder this question... About whether a teacher is trustworthy or not. One place it seems we could start is to ask ourselves how we feel in their company. Do we get the impression that this teacher is primarily interested in serving? the student's aspirations for selflessness and for progress on the path or are they more interested in the student serving the teacher and to allow ourselves to ask that question do we feel that the teacher sees us hears us without judging us Is that how we feel in their company? Now, sometimes it's the case that Dhamma students have the impression they're not allowed to ask such questions, that they're supposed to just accept the authority of the the spiritual teacher. But if we do have such an assumption, we really do leave ourselves vulnerable to being manipulated. So I would suggest that's, that's one place we could start and to to ask how do we feel in the company, how does it feel, how does all of me, how does this whole body mind feel, not to assume that the teacher knows best, not to arrogantly assume that we know best, but to be interested in inquiring and, and that's certainly something that the Buddha encouraged you know, finding out for ourselves. I remember When Ajahn Sumaito, this is many years ago now, Ajahn Sumaito was relating how when he first arrived at Wapapong and uh, he'd been staying in another monastery up in Nongkai, uh, further up north of where Ajahn Chah lived and he'd been practicing in a particular meditation method that he had learned and having some interesting results and when he was encouraged to go and visit Ajahn Chah, he came with the expectation that he was going to be told to do uh, a new method, a new technique. And and sure enough, when he did visit Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah did ask him how his meditation was going, what was he doing, and Ajahn Samartha related to him, well, I do practice like this, I practice like that, and Ajahn Chah said, oh, it's fine, carry on and see how it works out. I remember Ajahn commenting how surprised he was that he had the permission to find out for himself. and With teachers, it, I think it is worth checking to see whether the teacher appears to be trying to sell us something or not. You know, do they have a particular technique? Well, it may well have worked for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for us is the teacher interested in us finding out for ourselves and helping us in that or is it a one size fits all and, and probably if it's the latter then it's good to be uh, be cautious and there's a young English monk living at Wapapong with Cha for for quite a number of years, who he observed the way that Ajahn Chah was quite quick to admonish the Thai monks, but almost never admonished him, and he wondered what was wrong. and, and he actually asked Ajahn Chah once. He said, "You know, I, I noticed, you know, you you're, you're really scold these Thai monks quite a lot, and, and yet you never scold me." You never give me a hard time, and how come? And I said, well, he said, you already give yourself a hard time. You don't need me to do it. And so agility, I would suggest, on the part of the teacher. Do we feel heard? Do we feel seen? Do we feel encouraged and supported? Also I think perhaps even more fundamentally personally I believe that we can cultivate a sense or like an intuition of trustworthiness if we ourselves are really committed to being trustworthy ourselves. In other words if we're developing the precepts if we're working on cultivating the precepts in a balanced, embodied, reflective way, not in some rigid kind of mechanical, judgmental, moralistic way. that would be a very unfortunate way of picking up the teachings on the precepts. But if we appreciate what training in precepts is potentially giving us, and reap the benefits of cultivating precepts which is self-respect and a sense of inner trustworthiness then I I think that gives us potentially that can give us an ability to read other people often with training and talk on precepts the assumption we have is that it's, it's somehow hard work and we're losing something and, and it's a less agreeable aspect of the teachings. But that's not at all the Buddhist approach. The, the precepts, like you see where the Buddha is sitting on the lotus, the lotus is the symbol for the precepts, for sila, for morality. It's that foundation on which the aspiration for liberation sits, the Buddha sits on the lotus and the lotus is that beautiful thing that comes up out of the swamp mm. radiantly beautiful and so it is with precepts that they give a sense of of beauty of, and para beauty is, is trustworthiness or self confidence And so in contemplating precepts it's worth checking our attitude whether we assume something negative about precepts, but whether we recognize the potential goodness and confidence and self-trust that can come from cultivating precepts. I read an article on the BBC website, tests that have been done that show that, that animals, and particularly dogs, can tell whether somebody is trustworthy or not. And whether it's because the tone of the voice of the person giving the orders to the dog or whether it's the gestures or I don't know what it is or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's even potentially the smell. Dogs are much more in tune to such things. Anyway, I do think that if we are committed to cultivating impeccability which is the spirit of uh, what's behind the the principle of the precepts, and and that it also equips us with a potential ability to read where somebody else is at. Can I trust this teacher? Is this situation safe? Is it appropriate to be vulnerable in this situation? In the scriptures it talks about the Buddha's kuti being referred to as the gandha kuti, which literally means the fragrant kuti. And the Buddha's, where the Buddha lived was supposedly, the, there was an aura of fragrance around it. And so I'm personally open to the idea that, that actually that's not just metaphorical, but there is the potential for sensing Virtue, sensing integrity, intuitively. There's another Dhammapada verse, verse 54, which says that the fragrance of flowers and sandalwood blows only with the prevailing wind. But the fragrance of virtue pervades all directions. So, getting back to considering teachers and whether it's suitable to trust them or not trust them, whether they're wise and discerning or not uh, of course I'm not suggesting that we should just look at the way they appear or the way they smell, that's, that's not not at all what I'm suggesting but that it is appropriate that that we assume the authority to consider for ourselves I think sometimes we're too quick to project our authority out onto somebody just because they sound confident or look confident, or because they've got lots of followers—something you know, again we probably know in the Kalama Sutta, so the Buddha specifically—don't you know, just believe in something because it's popular. It's appropriate to ask the right questions and to feel allowed to ask the right questions the right way at the right time and. including asking, as I said, asking the questions of ourselves. Like, for instance, if you're in the company of some teacher and you just suddenly feel all weak, you you can't help but collapse at their feet. And what's going on there? We should ask ourselves, is is that because this person really is wonderfully holy and and radiant, or is it because of their inflated sense of self-importance and that self-inflation intimidates us to giving all our power away why do we do that why do we become weak in somebody's company that's a good question and and part of our mindfulness practice part of our spiritual training it's appropriate to learn to feel allowed to ask such questions and to learn to be able to ask such questions and sometimes I think it's an unfortunate, unintended side effect of the, the welfare state that people think they're entitled to have somebody to look after them. Of well, for that matter, it could also be an unfortunate, unintended side effect of theistic religion. that You always imagine there's some external authority that's responsible for us. And the Buddha wasn't inclined to criticise other religions unless they taught in a way which undermined confidence in the law of karma if a religion did undermine somebody's faith and confidence in the law of karma it could be critical we need if we're going to progress on this journey to to take this on board this you know this reflection that we do every day i am the owner of my karma heir to my karma born of my karma related to my karma Abide supported by my Kamma, whatever Kama I shall do, for good or for ill of that, I will be the heir. All beings are the owners of their Kamma, heir to their Kamma, born to their Kama, relate to their Kamma, abide supported by their Kamma. Whatever Kama they shall do, for good or for ill of that, they will be the heirs. Many Buddhist monasteries, this is a daily reflection or twice daily reflection, even, with following the Buddha's encouragement, that regularly reflecting something prepares our hearts and minds for insight to arise mm. we may have confidence in the law of karma but fairly superficial not deep confidence mm. but that confidence can deepen mm. by this regular wise reflection so for many of us having been brought up in a culture that doesn't necessarily teach us about the law of karma and quite the opposite, in some cases it does teach us that somebody else's or something else, some external authority, whether it's mummy or daddy or another spiritual authority or the state is going to look after us. So in many ways we are often conditioned to somehow think it's okay to project our authority out and then get upset when The world doesn't make us feel safe and secure. Mm -hmm. But life is dangerous. Getting born is dangerous. Going to a restaurant is dangerous. You never know what the state of the kitchen is in. You you don't usually go out to the kitchen and have a look and see what the health and safety conditions are like out there. Some of them, some of the ones I've seen, are not very good. And driving is very dangerous. So there's all sorts of risks around and, and likewise in the spiritual journey there are real risks and the wise thing to do is not just to accept the way things appear to be just because a teacher might be popular or eloquent or or even beautiful for that matter mm. that's not the criteria so how do we feel in their company do we feel this is trustworthy. Another way of affording ourselves protection in this area is to consider whether a teacher sets the right sort of example. Like, like in our own case, for instance... Imagine the example of if there was only one place on a meditation retreat, you wanted to go on a retreat, and there were three people who wanted to go on that retreat, and the other two volunteered to give up their place on the retreat so that you could go. How would you feel? Wow, that's, that's beautiful. That's, I really feel grateful and real respect for those people giving up, sacrificing something for the sake of our benefit. and you know, We can do this for ourselves, teachers can do this for us and I certainly know how inspired and encouraged I've been when I've seen the sacrifices that you know, my teachers have made for the benefit of the students. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't have to in this regard just rely on other teachers. We can also cultivate this uh, with, for ourselves as with precepts we can cultivate inner trustworthiness. We can cultivate inner confidence, inner respect, by being willing to make sacrifices. other is cultivating renunciation. Being willing to give up our preferences for the sake of practice. Just as if we saw somebody else giving up, following their preferences for our benefit, if we see that we give up, we're willing to give up following our preferences for the sake of our spiritual benefit, that counts, that, that, that registers. And so, as I was saying before about precepts, we can have an initial, uninspected approach to precepts that somehow kind of negative and unattractive, or well, we can likewise, with regards to renunciation, miss the point. It's renunciation actually serves our aspirations. The cultivation of renunciation actually gives us energy. It's not that we're losing. Yeah, maybe we're losing momentary agreeability on some superficial level, but on a deeper level we gain strength, we gain confidence, we gain certainty, we gain respect that also affords us a sense of self-protection we feel like we're looking after ourselves we feel safe but we are creating that sense of safety for ourselves so yes sometimes we depend on our teachers and but uh, as i was saying in the beginning there we depend on our teachers in the process of becoming dependent on ourselves ultimately the Buddha wanted us to be completely self-reliant you are your own true refuge but in the process we do benefit from having virtuous teachers, wholesome examples people who give us guidance and sometimes admonition, sometimes advice and And when you see a teacher making such gestures, you know, like teachers who, lay teachers who make a point of committing to keeping the five precepts or sometimes keeping and encouraging the eight precepts, how does that compare with when you see people who are not keeping even the five precepts? It's always actually quite easy to make a rational argument why. An occasional drink of alcohol is not a big deal. You know, it's not like killing or stealing or lying, and such an argument could be made. But you know, the Buddha did include abstaining from taking intoxicants as one of the basic five precepts, cultivation of impeccability. You know, one obvious reason is because once we take intoxicants, we are very likely to break the other four precepts, or more likely to break the other four precepts. So when a teacher or a friend or a companion sets a good example by committing to cultivating precepts and renunciation, that's a gift. Reflecting on renunciation in this way can be very helpful. Yeah. Not just seeing the negative side of conditioned Perceptions of precepts of renunciation. After Ajahn Chah went back to Thailand having visited England here he made the comment to somebody that he was a little concerned about how well the Sangha would develop here in Britain. He just left a small gathering of monks here and One of his concerns was the degree of affluence he observed when he was here was such that he said, Oh, the Sangha are going to be so well supported that they'll never go without anything. And what's a curious thing to be worried about? (laughs) You'd think, you know, he'd want the monks to be well supported. But but his concern was, in the expression he gave in Thai, Tamay or may major learn, which literally translates as "if you don't go without, if you don't sacrifice, you don't develop." The a, a fundamental principle of progress on the spiritual journey: there does have to be sacrifice if there's going to be development. And last week, a uh, New Year's Eve talk, I think it was, I was referring to where the Buddha said it's not seeing two things that means that you stay stuck with this struggle, not seeing suffering, not seeing the causes of suffering. Just these two things. We can make it very complicated, but the Buddha characteristically regularly brought it down to the basics and said it's just these two things, not seeing these two things, not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. So if we want to see suffering and we want to see the cause of suffering then we need to investigate very subtly, very clearly, very carefully our relationship to wanting. Yeah. It's distorted form of wanting that creates the suffering. It's, again, this is not a some sort of moralistic judgment of of desire. That's a very undeveloped approach. The Buddha wanted us to, by way of experiment, investigate and see how is it that we turn very natural, perfectly appropriate, understandable experience of wanting into toxic craving and suffering. How do we do that? When do we do that? Where do we do that? And if we want to get that reading, if we want to get a reading, an accurate reading on our relationship with wanting then we need to be willing to renounce mm. our habitual ways of relating to it we need to be willing to go against or well, what i sometimes i've uh, referred to as strategic frustration Yeah, the common understanding of the word frustration is is again like with you know, talk about morality precepts renunciation and frustration you're kind of negative kind of don't want that but in many fields you'd be familiar with the expression stress testing yeah. stress testing is that's valuable yeah, it's, it's essential in, in all sorts of areas to do stress testing to get a reading. So, likewise, in the spiritual journey, to stress test our relationship to the spiritual faculties: how well established, how strong is our sati sampajanya, our mindfulness and clear comprehension? Stress testing that. How strong, how well developed is our relationship to indriya samvara, no? sense restraint, our container? How refined, how accurate? is our capacity for wise reflection asking the right questions in the right way at the right time stress testing that that's what this willingness to go against or strategic frustration the willingness to go against our conditioned habits of craving is about Mm. too much frustration, there's unskillful stress testing it's like like a test <laughs> a technician in a, somebody's stress testing somebody's heart condition and the technician doesn't know what they're doing That can be serious consequences we don't want to be unskillful or heedless or idealistic or naive or rash in our approach to these practices but again this is where if we have a wise and discerning teachers who can set a good example for us and how to go about, how to approach turning the pressure up putting our systems under stress so as to get a reading an accurate reading of our relationship to wanting because only when we see it for ourselves can there be uh, an adjustment we we recalibrate once we see where we're making a mistake where we see that we're doing the clinging This is how, where, and when we do the clinging that turns natural wanting into craving. When we see that, well, then we can stop doing it until we see it, we're very unlikely to stop doing it. So the benefit of a skillful teacher is that's a good example for us to learn how to do that in the right way. Being overly idealistic, being overly rash, and being in a hurry, expecting results too quickly can take us in the opposite direction. But likewise, not being willing to turn the pressure up. is Sometimes, unfortunately, some teachers are too afraid to instruct their students in these areas. And students don't like hearing these things sometimes. Don't want to hear these things. Don't want to hear about renunciation. Don't want to hear about stress testing. Don't want to hear about putting themselves under pressure. And When Ajahn Chah was in America and he heard about some of the teachings that were going on there, he said it's, it's like putting the students in a leaky boat and pushing them out to sea. Teachers were not talking about sila, were not talking about precepts. Not talking about renunciation. Part of the result of that is that the students are not willing to be daring. Because Warapanya asked Ajahn Chah, "Yeah, what makes you different? You know, there's tens of thousands of monks in Thailand, and but you're different. You've got something else." And Ajahn Chah was in very matter of fact, and he said, "Oh, and say, you know, I was more daring. The others were not daring. There does need to be a daring spirit, you know, daring to go into the unknown, daring to feel uncomfortable, daring to face uncertainty with a heart that's open and sensitive and a mind that's clear and capable of investigating, that daring approach, again, is, is essential if we want to see beyond the way things merely appear to be. And if teachers don't set a good example or don't instruct their students in these matters, then the, t- the students can be mollycoddled. You get a lot of mollycoddled meditators who are not daring to take any risks, as well as idealistic Rash meditators who take too many risks, too soon. Mm-hmm. Dhammapada verse 85 says, Few of those who reach the beyond, most pace endlessly back and forth, not daring to risk the journey. Yeah. So certainly is the encouragement to be willing to take risks on this journey absolutely and to be daring but how do we prepare ourselves rightly prepare ourselves well this verse that we're contemplating this evening uh, finding wise and discerning teachers who skillfully offer encouragement skillfully offer direction is of great benefit and that encouragement and that Support is going to show itself in our willingness to be more enthusiastic, more interested, more sincere in developing precepts, not just more greedy for going on retreats and having insights. More interested, more willing to submit ourselves to strategic frustration or renunciation. Going against our preferences. And in the process, hopefully, also finding those teachers who are going to give us an encouragement in a kindly kind of way. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> So.